calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of IGN Unfiltered, our monthly interview series where we sit down with the best, brightest, most interesting minds in the video game industry. I am joined by a man whose career is fascinating and continues to, uh, to be fascinating. I appreciate you joining me. Fergus Urquhart, thank you so much. Absolutely. Happy to be here. For coming on up to yep. San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, you, role-playing games have been, have been your career, but mm-hmm. the thing I wanted to start with you, obviously, is... I mean, I, I get it bad enough with McCaffrey, but right, 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 right. you must have the best Starbucks coffee cup <laughs> names. I, I think the best ones are just, actually, it even happened this morning when we were getting on the, on the flight. Uh, so I, you know, I, I drink iced tea, so I ordered my iced tea, and then she asked my name, and I said, Fergus. And she just sort of like, kind of, and then send the cook. And then, of course, I heard, oh, and an iced tea for no name. So that, that, that she just oh, she, she just punted didn't it. Even she, try. she didn't even try. She just punted it. But I get a lot of I get a lot of Curtis. I get a lot of uh, um, I just or just like looks like what are you even talking about? That's not a name. Um, I think you know oh. I, what uh, particularly for my last name. I think it was always funny in in school, like in elementary school, or high school, something like that. Yeah. Particularly when we had a sub because the sub would basically you know go through you know Smith and right. Russell Roll and yeah. and then and then right before me was a guy named his uh, last name was Euler and then and then and we were on, all in a lot of classes together. So they would get Euler and then there would just be this pause and everyone in the class would just look at me <laughs> and I would go here you know because that was they're just they wouldn't even try they just oh, they just they goodness. just would give up. Uh, so uh, your career, as I mentioned earlier, it's it's been overwhelmingly dominated by role playing games, mm-hmm, which absolutely. I think is is absolutely fascinating. Uh, were you a pen and paper D and D player as a kid? Absolutely. I you know I think I, I got into D and D. Was a friend of mine. I think it was in sixth grade. Is a guy named Jason Buchanan, and he I was at one of his birthday parties. And what's this D and D thing? I'd kind of heard about it, but yeah. whatever. So really, starting in sixth grade, and and I you know I the, we had the basic set, but we really got into A D and D fairly quickly. Um, and then in high school, um, I was uh, weirdly at that time the high school was at. Uh, they had a gaming club, you know, and so of course, you know, we have obviously tabletop, dated, tabletop, yeah. and, and role playing, and, and uh, obviously we uh, uh, dated heavily because you know we were in the gaming club. But um, but yeah, so I just really got and we played everything. I mean, we played D and D, we played Paranoia, we played uh, Powers and Perils, we played uh, RuneQuest, uh, other world, like we had just all this stuff, right? And just we we played an immense amount of things, vill- villains and vigilantes, all these games that I think Twilight two thousand people that probably don't even remember anymore. Um, but yeah, really into it. I loved it. I mean, it was um, 
it was just it was and, and into comics as well. But but yeah, paper, uh, pen and paper was was one of my things. So as, as someone who would go on to become a, a creator <clears throat> of video games, when you did play those tabletop mm-hmm. games, were you were you the dungeon master usually? I, I was not. So I don't know. I I, I want, I'd like to say that I wasn't a lazy child, but I think I was much lazier <laughs> child than I was as as an adult. And I and I wasn't. Uh, you know, I think interesting. Also, I mean, I was your your prototypical nerd geek. I was very. Um, I like to be in the sh- not in the shadows. That sounds right, but I did like <laughs> to be at the forefront. And I think yeah. I think I you know I had to force myself. And you know, in eighth grade, I took speech because I just I had a fear of talking in front of people. And and I think that was a big part of it. So I really enjoyed being with my friends and 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 going on adventures. But I liked the, doing it, and and I think also I just like I said I just didn't I didn't like to be the center of attention. I think, and that's what a DM sometimes is. So so what led you to the video game industry then? <clears throat> You know, I think at the time there was just such a... I mean, there still is such a great crossover, but I think back then is like my my video gaming group, which back then was pretty much not video games, was too little bit video games, was yeah. mostly computer games with... Uh, I, I had a Commodore 64, my friends had Apples. Uh, we were playing uh, Bard's Tales and Wastelands and yeah. all that kind of stuff. And and so we kind of did both. We did the pen and paper and we, we did those. And, and I think, oddly, um, just through... How it all happens? Like I had friends who eventually I had a friend who I got a job at Domino's, and then he pizza. That was my, my was my high school college job, and then he got me. Then he went to work at Egghead Software, and then they got into a D and D game. It's all this really winding thing, but he got into a D and D game with a person from Interplay. None of us kind of even really knew that Interplay, uh, which was a publisher, they're still right. kind of around, but they were the publisher we all first worked for. And he, they said, you know, he got a job there in customer service, and then the summer of '91. He said, "Hey, they need testers for the summer." And so, there we go. I got a, I, I never knew I was going to be a bioengineer. I was not going to be making games. <laughs> and so, I and that's I did it and then just kept on doing it. So, cuz the, the yeah. this core group of of people that you worked with ended up sort of really sticking with you even up really mm-hmm. through now. Yeah, yeah, Chris yeah. Avalone, uh, most of them anyway. Chris mm-hmm. Avalone, Josh Sawyer, Darren Monahan, Chris Parker. Mm-hmm. How how does that group come to Come to form, come together. Uh, yeah. So it's interesting. It really is. Um, uh, it really was interplay, you know. And at interplay, when I first started, I was like employee thirty, you know. And then, it, then, and then when I got rehired full time, I was like employee one eleven. And and interplay was just growing at leaps and bounds. And then in, I'm trying to remember the exact year, it's ninety three or ninety four. Uh, interplay got the D and D license. I was a producer at the time, and 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 this is kind of where I guess where it all comes together. So I was a producer. And another producer, um, a guy named Rusty Buchert, who's done a lot of stuff, and he he, he worked at Sony on um, on a Flow and not Bray, but I think Flow and things like that. Uh, he um, had run QA. He's who actually hired me originally. Was is him, and then he went off to be a producer on some other stuff. So they needed to give him games, and the game that they gave me was Shattered Steel. And Shattered Steel was Bioware's first game, and so that's kind of how I got involved with Bioware. And while that was all going on, um, like Chris Parker and uh, Darren were both in QA, and Chris was got hired into the RPG division before I was running it, and because he had been a pen and paper designer, uh, and then you know other people like Scott Everts and Chris Taylor and a bunch of other people that still work for us and worked on the original Fallout's and stuff like that, um, we're all kind of doing different stuff, but we all. You get to 95, and then when I started running Black Isle in 1996, yeah. we just sort of all kind of eventually came together in this division, you know, and got got to work on a bunch of great games. 
And those, and that's the thing for anybody that may be watching this, thinking, "Who is this guy? Why does his name sounds vaguely familiar?" It's not uh, just because of his name. No, this <laughs> is why you've heard of him. So your team would go on to make Fallout Two, mm-hmm. Planescape Torment, Icewind Dale, uh, Baldur's Gate Dark Alliance Two, Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic Two, Fallout New Vegas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as far as, uh, and then most recently, I mean, you've got your own projects, but yeah. South Park, The Stick of Truth was a yes. uh, big, big, mm-hmm, uh, big game. One of, my, yeah. one of my favorite games of 2013, mm-hmm. 2014. 14. Oh, man. Time's flying too yeah. fast. Uh, so it, what are the odds that you ended up connecting with a group of people that talented uh, to, that, that stuck together and made all those games? I don't know. I mean, people ask me that a lot, and I think... <laughs> I, I don't know. A lot of it was luck. A lot of it was a bunch of people, um, you know, because it, it was a lot of stuff that was just all feeding together, you know. And I think that a lot of us loved games. They loved We loved pen and paper. And we loved, um, and we wanted to make games that we would play. We wanted to make games that we love. We wanted to, and, and I, the person who I can give a lot of credit to is actually is Brian Fargo. So Brian Fargo was running Interplay. Um, he started, the first game he did was Demon Forge, which was like an adventure. I don't know how much of an RPG it was, but an adventure. But then he moved uh, Interplay into where they were making Bard's Tale and sure. Dragon Wars and Wasteland and, and stuff like that. And, and he was just a believer in role-playing games. He loved them. And so I think because he was the guy running the company, he let us do those things. And, uh, you know, one of my, you know, the things I often talk about is and even is because you know, the stuff that we, you know, uh, the fallouts we developed internally, and then we worked with Bioware on the Baldur's Gates, right. and then Neverwinter Nights until it had moved, it moved to Atari. But, uh, you know, I always try to give Brian an immense amount of credit because, you know, with the original Baldur's Gate, uh, Bioware had been kind of showing me builds before it was Baldur's Gate and everything. And then they, um, and then they've said, okay, we're going to sign with, we're going to sign with either Westwood or Surtex, so I, we're just going to show it to you one last time. And I'm like, okay, it looks amazing now. Let's, let's figure this out. Um, and, you know, the head of development at the time just said, didn't get it. And he's like, I don't, that, I don't, whatever. That's not something to do. Because at that point, it wasn't a D&D game. And I said, my only part of the sauce was I said, well, Ray and Greg, why don't we make it a D&D game? And, and he didn't get it. And then luckily, I showed it to the VIP of marketing. And she was like, I totally get it. And she called Brian. And I, did, I had an okay relationship with Brian at the time. He was still Brian Fargo to me, you know. <laughs> it's so odd because, you know, I have lunch with him all the time. But he was like... Sure, he was kind of like a star for me still back then, and and um, and he uh, uh, not that he's not a star still, but <laughs> um, and he and so he came. It was, it was like two minutes. He just looked at it, just and he goes, "Just sign it," you know. And uh, yeah, and I and, and I think it was our passion for that stuff, and then just that that there was a person there that allowed us to have that passion, and um, and continue to get to play and not have to say, "Oh, ship this." Originally, not say ship this in 12 months or 14 months he he gave us the time and he gave us the budgets and he gave us the people uh and a freedom like he really didn't push us too hard on a lot of things is that does that sort of uh bleed through to your <clears throat> management style now running a studio do you do you kind of think back to that sometimes and go oh that's i just need to Im- give my people the freedom to <laughs> to do their thing yes it's hard sometimes because uh, you know there's this thing i think at any time you're managing anything whether it's games or maybe any kind of products like for me i i want people to create i want them to have ownership i want them to create i want them to create the things that they're proud of but i also like we've a lot of us have also been, do, have been doing this for a long time and so we know that there's certain roads that if you go down it hits you're going to hit a brick wall and so a lot of times we're trying to like convince people like, like it helped them help them see that. But to be honest, sometimes we know the best thing to do is let them hit the brick wall because that's how they learn the best. Interesting. 
So, despite all that success, mm-hmm. uh, all of you at Black Isle were laid off just before, if I have it correct here, just before Christmas in 2003. Mm-hmm. Did you start to see the writing on the wall with that, or, or was, it, <clears throat> was it a total shock when, when In Your Play started well, to... for us, you know, what, I, you know, it really all started with uh, Interplay lost the D&D license. Um, and ultimately, they lost it because um, there was a bunch of unpaid royalties, and there was uh, some arguments with some developers and things like that. And unfortunately, at the time, we were making Baldur's Gate 3. We'd built a whole new engine, wow. and we were making Baldur's Gate 3. And it looked amazing. You know, as I was... I mean, obviously, it wouldn't compete because this was like 2001, right? So it's not going to be competitive today. But, but you know, I was looking at some shots from it just, you know, probably a couple years ago, and it looked pretty damn good, you know? And so that was really disheartening. And I think I almost left in 2002, um, and, but I stayed on because I felt that I, I, I was responsible, and I was responsible for people there. And, and I, I was kind of the, not arrogantly, but I was the guy, there wasn't anyone to really take over for me, you know? Yeah. And so... And so I stayed on, and then by the early 2003, Brian had now been gone for a while, and I, you know, and, and I could just, I, I couldn't get computers approved. I mean, it was just, we were working on, even though we were still bringing in all the revenue, like, Black Isle just, we weren't getting anything. And so, um, so it was actually early 2003, and I left. I just decided, okay, I'm done. And, and then, uh, you know, uh, Chris Parker, Darren Monahan, Chris Avalon, they followed pretty quickly. A couple, uh, Dan Spitzley, Aaron Myers, they followed... Uh, uh, soon after that, both of them, Aaron Myers was the lead artist on Planescape Torment, and Dan Spitzley was the lead programmer. And then through the 2003, and then by August, we had signed up uh, Knights of Republic 2. And, and then right when, as we were signing up Knights of Republic 2, um, that is when then Interplay started shutting down Black Isle. And I would say probably by the end of 2003, you know, we probably had about 20, 25 people, of which 23 of them were from Black Isle. Yeah, that's, uh, <clears throat> that's you know... That's a lot of loyalty. Does that, does that make you feel good when when you have all everybody stick with you like that? Yeah, I, I I'd love to know why. Sometimes, I mean, I mean, I, I mean, of course, everyone looks at themselves and thinks, "Oh, I'm a great guy and I'm a great boss and all that kind of stuff." And I think that if there's anything I could point out why I think people do stick with us, is we're really honest with everybody. Um, I, a lot of people say in business that they have an open door policy. Um, we really do. I mean, I think you could ask anybody at Obsidian and ask, do you feel that you know more about what's going on at the studio than anywhere else you've worked? Do you feel that you can talk to Fergus whenever you need to, um, if you had to? Um, and I think the answers there would almost be yes. And I, I think that that's, I don't know where I got that management style. I, I, I can't even tell you. There was no, there was no class. There was no book or anything like that. It's who you are, I guess. I, it's who I, or it's how, it's how I wanted to be treated. I think, um, you know, uh, particularly in the early 90s, I mean, it was it was kind of you know nerds and and computer dorks and everything who very not socialized very well maybe who were running everything and that's that's who we were we were just it wasn't as cool like it wasn't cool at all yet to, to to do what we were and so and I think that didn't lead to a lot of people that knew how to, to communicate and I think that I saw that like I didn't like to be communicated with the way that I was being communicated with right. and I think I learned a lot that way I, I think I guess I don't know. And um, and so we just kind of built that management style, you know. And I think that that's how Chris Parker feels, and Darren, and and uh, and Chris Jones. And so we we felt that way. And I think that we've just continued that on for you know since I took over Black Owl in '96, and now it's 2017. And we have people who still work for us who worked who were in the division that I took over in '96. Yeah. 
so you had a game in development codenamed Van Buren mm-hmm. in the early 2000s. Yes. It was, uh, you mentioned Baldur's Gate 3. Yes. You had, it, was, it was the original Fallout 3 before we got the Bethesda yeah. version. Actually, it was actually the second Fallout 3. The second Fallout 3. It was the 3. second Fallout 3. So weirdly, um, the first Fallout 3 was uh, after Torment was still in development and Fallout 2 was done, and we were now going to do a 3D. Like, now 3D was the cool stuff. Right. You know, it's, uh, and so we were going to move from being a 2D engine and, and, uh, and be a 3D engine. And so we actually started working with this 3D engine called, this 3D technology called NDL. Uh, oddly, and so, and what happened was, is just, is just it was, it, we were moving forward, but we were still really learning. And um, Interplay was, it's kind of where Interplay started to kind of run into financial trouble. Yeah. And that's where Icewind Dale came from, is that, um, you know, I, I try not to take you know individual credit for a lot of stuff, but it was just one morning, and I was just really stressed, and you know, and trying to figure out a solution to this, and I was like, and, you know, every once in a while these inspirations come to you, and I said, well, what happens? Like Baldur's Gate is this story, our great RPG story, but we all loved those RPG uh, dungeon crawls, so Absolutely. why not do that as like a counterpoint to to Baldur's Gate? So the Fallout Three team became the Icewind Dale team. And, uh, but the NDL story is the odd one because NDL was the 3D engine that eventually, I forgot, merged or got bought um, by Gamebryo. Oh, and wow. Gamebryo Which went on to, to be... make Fallout 3. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so there's weird, weird things. But yeah, Van Buren actually was actually weirdly the second incarnation. Of so it. I'm curious, obviously, to this, this, there is more to this story, which we'll get to. But So what did you think of Bethesda's Fallout mm-hmm. 3 when that was the Fallout 3 that finally came right. out? I really enjoyed it. I, I mean, I I uh, I am probably one of the least critical people about like. There's certain game types and games. I think you know, uh, you know, we we in the past we we you know we're talking about uh, racing games and stuff like yes. that. And I can be critical of like, I want to have fun playing a game. I don't necessarily have to have a super simulation. And so I don't even know if that's game criticism or it's just like that's a game I like or yeah, don't it's like. Just you. I play games as I did when I was you know on my Atari twenty six hundred. I'm just having fun. And I don't mean that to make so that I'm not making any form of like uh, like non-statement about Fallout Three, but with Fallout Three, I really enjoyed it. Like, and I felt it felt Fallout. Yeah. Um, now I absolutely understand some of people's criticisms about some of the Fallouts, and that you know maybe it didn't have as poignant of um, uh, a story, or or it didn't have as much player choice and things like that. All I know is that it I felt like I was in the Fallout world, you know, and and particularly with like Megaton and that. Decision making and all that sure. kind of stuff. Like I don't know. I really enjoy. It. That's mutants felt like mutants. Uh, you know, the the vault, Bell, vault boy felt like the vault boy. Um, I felt like I was. In did that you world. did you nuke Megaton? Uh, I did not. I'm horrible. <laughs> I I am I, I I am the paladin. I I just I don't know why. I, when I play, you know, when, when I'm playing Shepard, you know, I have my my uh, um, Paragon. 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 I was going to Paragon. <laughs> uh, oddly, you know, weirdly enough, at home as I'm playing like Mass Effect Two. Uh, where I live in Irvine, there's all this uh, new construction. And I don't know if it's just one of those weird things that happens. I'm driving into work one day, and the new street that's going to this new housing developed is Paragon, which I'm like, I'd never <laughs> seen the word ever anywhere else. Uh, but yes, yeah, so I'm always playing the, 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 the paladin, you know, with, wants his Paragon to be as high as possible. So uh, speaking of good evil, you guys partnered with LucasArts mm-hmm. to make Star Wars Knights of the Old <clears throat> Republic 2. Which uh, is you know, a sequel to another just massive game. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but if, if my research is correct, that wasn't your first idea for a Star Wars game to do no, with them, was it? No, no. Our first idea, so what we, uh, and I still hold to this, I, I still want to make this game or a game like it. Um, but 
is we had worked with uh, Snowblind on a game called Dark Alliance, and uh, which was a D&D uh, action RPG, like a Diablo-like yeah, a dungeon crawler. A dungeon crawler. Uh, which ended up awesome. And we, you know, what was great is could we really kind of worked with them on it. Like Chris Avalon had done a lot of design and, and, and they were not a new developer, but this is maybe a little bit bigger of a game that they'd done. And so we really worked in conjunction. I mean, they did all the work and it was their engine. It was their artwork and everything like that. But, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was fun to be able to right. collaborate. Um, and then we actually did Dark Alliance 2 internally uh, while they went off to do uh, some other games. And, uh, and my idea, but we'd always had a really good relationship with them. And so that was, that was just, well, the first idea is, like, there hadn't been a game like that, like an action, Star Wars action RPG. And that was the first pitch. Like, what about, you know, using the Dark Alliance engine and making a Star Wars action oh, RPG? Oh, that would have been good. It would have been super cool. And, you know, uh, you know Simon Jeffrey, who was, watch, who was running LucasArts at the time, you know, I think he didn't, it wasn't like a pitch they, they thought was bad. Um, I think some people there had a hard time getting their head around it. Um, but, uh, but, you know, we were still talking about it as, you know, as the other opportunity came up, which was KOTOR 2. KOTOR 2, yeah. So uh, was that, was, for your team, a yeah. team of expert role-playing <clears throat> game makers, is, is that like a dream come true to, to get to work on a Star Wars RPG? Yeah, it, it was weird. I mean, you know, it's funny. I, like, I, I feel like somehow I've fallen into, you know, being, you know, hit, you know hitting on, I don't want to the nerd trifecta means three, but, I, you know, a lot of it is I got D&D, I got D&D, Star Wars, and Star Trek in my, you know, and I've got to work. And, and if I, then I actually got to work in a Lord of the Rings game, so there's all this kind of stuff. But no, I mean, Star Wars was awesome. And, and Now, what's funny, though, our, initially, though, we were like, we weren't as hyped about it, you know, because part of it, it wasn't going to be our own game idea, right. and it was going to be a sequel. And, and, um, and, you know, and I actually have to give Ray and Greg a lot of credit. As I called them up and told them, I was like, I don't know exactly. They're like... Well, here's the deal. Like, like it's your opportunity. I know you. They go. I know you're pitching another Star Wars game, but this is your opportunity to do Star Wars, and you're just starting a company. And we can tell you that when you are going to a bank or talking to some company, and you say, "Oh, I'm working on a Star Wars game," they all immediately know what you're talking. They they don't know what games. They don't know this. They don't know that. But they know Star Wars, and um, you'd be amazed whether it opens doors or it doesn't open doors. It just it helps. And um, and I thought that's a really good point. And and uh, and then you know we got to play um, earlier builds of the game and things like that. And so um, not earlier, we started to actually play the game more. It was a sad thing, you know, when Kotor came out. Um, we were starting up a company, so we yeah, weren't obsidian. actually. So yeah, so we weren't actually. Um, uh, we weren't as we hadn't actually played it a lot. And then that opportunity came, and now we we're like, oh. And then once we played it, like, no, this would be awesome. We we got to make this. Um, so. The timeline on that game is is nuts to me as somebody who's who's covered <laughs> games. I mean, right. you know the the guy that pays sixty well fifty bucks at the time, mm-hmm. and, you know, does if they don't think about yep. it. But uh, you signed the deal to do that game in October '03, August actually, August '03. You were given about fifteen months, 14, 15 fi- months, yeah, to fi- to finish a role playing game, yes. a forty hour role playing mm-hmm. game. Uh, you were given an extension into 2005 only to have that extension rescinded? Is that, I don't know if that so research is corrected here. Uh, it, it is correct here. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the, the story goes that you were forced to ship it for the holiday season in 04. So what's that? Is, is, it just, is, that a, is it just devastating to you guys to have that ship or else, kind of that, that sort of... So guillotine hanging over your heads? So yes, but at some level, what are you going to do? Right? This is your opportunity. 
right? So you can you can uh, you can be mad about it. You can complain about it. We can go to beers and be mad and cry and all this other kind of stuff. But that was the deal. Like yeah. in the in the end, that was the um, that's what we told you know. And and we learned a lot. I mean, we learned you know. And I always try to give this recommendation to developer you know other developers and everything like you know. And I and it's one that I don't always still take myself. But like if if you're doing work for someone and that they want to change something about the work you're going to do. Get in and writing, you know. And that was that was the. the and I'm not blaming. Like, a lot of it is I don't want LucasArts to sound like bad people or anything like that. Right. Things change, sure, right. And the the fact of the matter is, we moved forward on something without an, a, a signed agreement. So I can't tell you if at the top of LucasArts that had all really been agreed to or not. Right. Um, I believe our producer, who is an amazing guy, he told us what he was told. And you know, and things happen, right? And I think that that's unfortunately, in some ways, what happened with Kotor, and and um, and we just sucked it up, you know, and 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 said, okay, that's what we got to do. And it meant cutting a planet. It meant uh, getting an ending of a of the game in that was not as robust and not as um, uh, didn't have as many um, pathways as we wanted. Um, but we shipped a game that we're we're still very proud of. So then, mm-hmm. Fallout comes full circle after mm-hmm. that, because yes. uh, ZeniMax and Bethesda come to you guys for a sequel slash spinoff to Fallout yeah, 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 3, yeah. Uh, which was, of course, New Vegas. Many people love that game. It sells huge. <laughs> uh, because it was Fallout, mm-hmm. was that more a bit more of a labor of love for, for the team than anything else? Or is, it, or is it sort of just another job at that point? Just no, 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 not at all. I, I, I want to say that... that um, Nothing we have done hasn't been something we wanted to do. Now, sometimes... I didn't mean it, to infer yeah, no, that. No, 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 no. But it's a good question because I, I think, uh, you know, there's... I don't want to call it the CD underbelly, but there's, there's, there is a CD underbelly somewhat to publishing, you know, game publishing, game development, in which there's a lot of developers out there that have to make games that they wouldn't choose at all yeah, to do. To keep the doors open. To keep the doors open. And it's a really hard decision to make. It's a really hard decision, particularly when the deal you're getting is maybe not even one that covers your cost. And so what you're trying to do is you're trying to make this decision of, do I close my studio? Or do I do this knowing that in, in 12, 14, 18 months, I'm actually going to be in a worse spot than I am right now, but it is giving me 12, 14, 18 months to, to, to solve the problem. Wow. Right? And it, it's crappy, right? And, uh, you know, and, but that's, and we've been offered a lot of that stuff. Um, I think... We've made the conscious decision to turn it down. Now, there's some products like um, you know that that are not what we may have thought we would make. You know, but uh, for the most part, we've everything we've done. We're like we've it's something we've yeah we're, we we want to do that. Like you know uh, we would maybe choose to do this other product, but this is not one we wouldn't do. And and we've never signed a deal that we would where we'd be worse off when we started. But with Fallout, no, I mean, I mean, come on, we made Fallout, we, you know, and, and, and we loved making it. And I stayed at Black Owl longer be, for the hope of making Fallout 3. And, and so getting to go back was just amazing. I mean, it was, it was just, it was a lot of fun. And, um, and you know, as, we, as we've all always said publicly many, many times, you know, we would always love to go back to Fallout. So uh, more, more urban legends with you guys. <laughs> right. uh, so... Your company infamously missed out on a bonus payment. Yes. Um, I'm sorry if you've told the story a million times, but it's, you know. It's totally fine. So the game sold huge. It was very well regarded. Mm -hmm. It lands on an 84 rating on Metacritic, which Mm -hmm. is 
a site that, of course, aggregates review mm-hmm. scores using a secret formula that it does, you know, <laughs> right. yeah. maybe it weighs IGN more than it weighs mm-hmm. Joe's RPG Game right, Reviews. Right, yeah, com. Yeah. Who knows? But uh, you end up missing right. team. Your, your company does not get this bonus Correct. because there was this Metacritic clause yes. in there. When it, why shouldn't? Why didn't Zenimax just pay you anyway when it's that close and it turns? You know, yes, they're following the letter of, of the contract. Absolutely, but isn't it a little short-sighted on their part to to burn, a, a, in my opinion, burn mm-hmm. a talented outfit right. like Obsidian in a situation like that? That's a tough. I mean, am, am I, I looking at this too no, no, emotionally? It's, it's, and not? It's, a, it's a very tough question to answer from the standpoint of like. In the black and white world of, of, you know, we all have to look at the contracts that we've signed and we have to hold up to the contracts we're signed. I, I have to hold up my end as the publisher has to hold up their end. And, I, you know, I could, they could say, well, you guys did, you know, there, there's a lot of stuff that goes on, right? And in which maybe what we did is we, there were more bugs in Fallout New Vegas when it shipped. Maybe that cost them more PR time to deal with. Like, there, it, it's, it's, it's not an uncomplex issue. Right. Now, black and white, yes. Um, Fallout New Vegas sold a ton of units. Um, we made a little bit of money, um, but we made money. I mean, that's the other thing to remember. Like, we, we're, we're a for-profit business, and we profited it on New Vegas. Um, and they continued to give us the DLC work, and that helped us out a lot, you know, as, you know, at, at the time. And I think the other thing that's important is, like, we didn't even ask for the bonus in the contract. I think that's a piece of information mm. that we've never really talked about before. But I thought it was an important thing to say. It was something that they put in there, um, and... You know, some people can look at it as bonuses in contracts are, are what they are, right? And and we generally ignore all of them, be, particularly when they're attached to something like Metacritic. Um, yeah, isn't it kind of ridiculous <clears throat> to to have money for bonus money be mm-hmm. tied to what idiots like me say on <laughs> on the internet? Oh I no, mean, <laughs> we 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 have other we have other contracts that our long term royalty stream is actually a pers- is actually if if we got lower than this Metacritic then that Metacritic was actually the percentage of the royalties we would originally get, right? Mm-hmm. So we, there's, and we come, because every contract, I think that's maybe something else that people don't always know, every contract that gets signed in making games um, is different. Like, there's all these different formulas and all these different ways to, to figure it out. But I think that, that ultimately how we've dealt with it, um, and I think, like I said, it's important to say that we're not the ones who put that bonus structure in there. Um, we pretty much, to be honest, I never looked at it as something, we weren't, Depending upon it, right. we didn't look at it like like when we didn't get it. We're like, I mean, okay, honestly, personally, we're like, it does feel a little petty to not give us. But that's me personally, and, sure. I, and I, I think it's it's not an unfair statement that I, you know. Hopefully, Bethesda doesn't think it's too unfair for me to say that. But on the flip side, um, it was the contract, and we didn't ask for it, right? So it, it it makes it a harder thing to go back and forth on. Now, what I can say is that it, you know, that, and I think other times that where we've been affected by those things. We just say we're not going to make anything in our deal tied to something that isn't representative of, of really of the product being successful. What is representative of the product being successful is how much it makes. Right. And so let's just talk about that. If the product doesn't make money, well, then we're not going to get a royalty. So let's not, let's not play this game of, of like, because there's, 85, there's, there's 95 rated games, I'm sure, that didn't make much money, if, not, if they made any money, money at all. So let's just do it. Let's let's and maybe this is in in our in our world where maybe games are supposed to be art to an extent that you know we're talking very dollars and cents. But in the end, that's how we get to continue to do what we do. 
So let's just tie it to that. And that's pretty much since then. No, I would say since then. We've never had anything in our contracts uh, that says something like that. That's good. I, I mean, because even to me as a guy who's <clears throat> reviewing games, yes. it seems ridiculous for... <laughs> right. Th- that yeah. seems ridiculous mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to me because what, yeah. what, what I say about your game shouldn't... Right. I don't yes. think it should, should affect how much yeah. money you get. Yeah, well, and there's this weird also, this thing, I totally, because you can also look at the data and say, well, if you, know, if you look at all the games have sold the most, most they're, all have, they're, they're all a Metacritic of 85 or more. But what's the real causal relationship there? Is that are those because they're big games that were given a lot of money and a lot of marketing and a lot yeah. of PR, um, or they were really that good, right? And, and, and you know, not to put this back on the press, but um, the press can review games differently based upon the, the publisher that is doing them. You know, because there's certain publishers hold the press. I don't think IGN, but there's certain, certain, pre- certain publishers hold the press somewhat accountable to some of the reviews and because they can say, oh, you, you don't get a review copy and you don't this and you don't that. that so there's a, there, there's a weird gray relationship a little bit. And I'm, I'm not saying there's any, I'm not a conspiracy theory or anything like yeah. that. But we recognize that. We know that when a publisher, a, uh, a reviewer goes and just blast something in our games, you know, like something minor just to create, um, to create clicks, um, we're like, go deal with them. Oh, we don't do that, you know. And so did that just cost me a review point? You know, I don't know. And, and it, so it's a very weird world. And so this is how we deal with it. We just don't anymore. So we, we'll, we hopefully will make games that will all, will all be rated at 85 or more. Yeah. But, um, but let's just focus on that. If we do our job, that means the game makes money, then, then, then we make money. Let's do it that way. It's just, it's, could, you guys could be making, you could have been making like Fallout Los Angeles right mm-hmm. now if they yes. just paid, if they just paid you for that. It would, would have been such a nice gesture of goodwill, but yeah, yeah. I guess it's. I, it, you it, know what? The best way for me to say it is. I'm um, upset for I you. know, I know, I, and I appreciate that. <laughs> but I don't, I don't lose sleep over it. You know, I, I guess this is the other thing that I've done, and this is why I've been maybe around for so long, and I'm not the person that's leaving the industry because we've had things like this happen to us. I go, I go, I just look, there's going to be another game. There's going to be another relationship. There's going to be, like, I, I haven't, like, I've not made, you know, I've not been involved in making the perfect game. I don't know if there is the perfect game, but, but um, and we'll do it, you know, we'll, we'll make another game, and we'll make a better game, and we'll, we'll do cooler stuff in there. And it, it will even screw up as well, but... I'm not, I don't look at this as, as a everything has to be a, a, a battle. You know, everything's a fight and everything's a battle. Probably healthier and, that way. Well, it's how I sleep, right? I mean, otherwise, <laughs> I, mean, right, I mean, believe me, running a development studio, uh, we all get together from sometimes, you know, the, the, the guys who do it, and we're just like, what the hell are we doing? Why are we doing this? You know, I mean, like, you know, we're not, we're not all, you know, most of us are not driving Ferraris and Lamborghinis, and we've been doing this for many, many years, and, you know, we're losing our hair now. And, and, and so why do we do it? We, we like making games, you okay. know, and, and so... And let's so we can't get caught up on yesterday. That that's the biggest thing I can say is like right. the why I can still do this is because yesterday was yesterday, and I'm going to wake up today and I'm going to wake up tomorrow and I'm going to try to do better and I'm not going to stress about it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. <laughs> 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. So I promise we are getting to why you're really here, oh. <laughs> which is to promote your next game. No, no, but again, yeah, yeah, your, yeah. your history is fascinating. Yeah. Particularly, I mean, it's, you know, you can't be a role-playing game fan and not mm-hmm. have played your games and followed your games and respected your games. But uh, every studio has has had canceled games. Absolutely. That's a, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh-huh. Yeah. That's just the, the way more than people I think. Right, it's, no. <laughs> a na- it's the nature of how the business works. But you guys have had a few particularly mm-hmm. notable ones that yes. I wanted to ask you about that have sort of made their way public in some mm-hmm. form mm-hmm. or another over the years. The two I wanted to ask you about are Aliens Crucible mm-hmm. and an Xbox One launch game called mm-hmm. Storm that was oh, supposed Storm. to be a launch game Stormlands, called Stormlands. Yeah. yeah. So uh, tell me about Aliens. Uh-huh. How far along was it? What happened to it? You know. I almost want to, like, at some point get a hold of Sega and said, hey, let us, let us release some footage because I think it would be cool. You know I, who to call. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would be cool for people to see it. Um, and uh, it was pretty far along. I, and I do not blame Sega uh, for canceling it. Um, I, I blame... The only thing I would say is I think they were a little short-sighted at the very end because all, cause this was a new engine and, and, and um, obviously a license and new, new gameplay that we were putting together or trying stuff, uh, different stuff than... Mass Effect had done, and it was just a lot of stuff going on. And, and I think that that it took a while for us to understand what we needed to do. And you know, and I've, I know I've said this before in a lot of interviews and stuff. Like the sad thing about it is, we delivered an amazing milestone, and then got canceled two days later, right? And so, and um, you know, obviously we can still boot it up. Though I just booted it up a little while ago. Um, you know, we're doing something new, and I was just booting it up to look at what we'd done. And, and yeah, again, the graphics don't hold up perfectly today, but they still hold up pretty damn well. Yeah. And and it was just, it was a party-based Aliens RPG, and you had a ton of control over your companions. You could, you know, select a door lock, hey, you go unlock that, and you go sit there. Here, put a sentry gun down there, and then the aliens would come in. Um, I guess the one thing I guess we probably learned a lot from doing that was, like, man, aliens are hard. <laughs> like, I just, they're just hard. Like, you know, and you, you don't think about it as, like, even as a game maker, and you think, okay, I have this quadruped thing with a super long tail, and I have all these big long pipes with airlocks. Well, how the hell do I have an alien go like this <laughs> and have it not look just, like, totally janky, right? <laughs> and um, so that was a lesson. Uh, but, um, but no, I, 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 that was it. I think I understood, not mad at Sega. Um, I just wish if they had only, if someone had just like holy crap, this is now like this is a game now and 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 it was it had a pipeline now and we had a level editor now and we had all these things and so it's like if we could just go on one more milestone, you know I think there would have been an Aliens Crucible on the shelf. Is that when it's when something is that far <clears throat> along and you had hit a big milestone and then two days later that happens? I mean, is there is the team just? Demoralized for a while after that, or, or how you know what? What's the? It's, I'm always curious, curious to go inside the mind of a game developer. Do you just kind of pick up and move on because you have to, or how? How is the all, psychology? I think it all depends on the situation. Obviously, if if as it was with Aliens, 
and Stormlands, uh, the cancellation was attached to a layoff. And that's always super hard. It's, I mean, you f- take it as a failure. Like, I mean, I just, just, you know, it makes me feel like I'm the worst person ever that I, I've, I'm putting this person out on the street. And, and so these people who have maybe worked for, with these other people for months, weeks, months, or years, they're now not in the office anymore. And, and so the, it kind of breaks up social circles. And, and so that's the worst kind of, of cancellation because you have the, you have the, the pers- people part of it um, as well as the this thing that I had been putting almost like postpartum depression, in that you've been putting all this energy into something and now um, uh, now it's gone. And I don't want to say you know, that post like, women's you know, I know women, what you women, mean. but I, yeah. So, but you even get that you know you even get that when you ship a game. I, I remember. I mean, this has happened a lot, but I remember the real first time for me was, um, uh, you know, when after Fallout shipped and Fallout Two shipped, we were just busy with other stuff, so I was immediately in the office and. But it was really Icewind Dale was this weird. Um, I had a little bit of time after Icewind Dale, and 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 we were just really working hard and crunching to get it done. And I was remember I get back to my my condo, sitting on the and like, and I decided to leave at like three p.m. just because I'm like I got nothing to do, and we just shipped it, and I'm freaking tired. Yeah. And so and I just remember I sat on the sat, sat on the couch looking at a you know TV that was turned off, and I'm like, All right now what do I do with myself? You know, and it's weird. You, you, you're trying to get out of it. I think that's a little bit when teams get canceled. It's like this: I'm doing, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing. This. Now I'm not doing that. Uh, I, well, that design document, I didn't, fin- I don't finish it anymore. I don't like. It's just done. You know, um, it's different though than when you have a cancellation, and you don't have a layoff. So we had a cancellation. We were doing a game for Disney called Dwarves, and that got canceled. Um, but luckily, we signed up Alpha Protocol as that was happening, um, and we didn't lay anybody off. It was just the the team just moved over, and so. I mean, there's still people at, at Obsidian who are disappointed that Dwarves got canceled. Um, but um, it's, it's like you're getting on the horse right a, again right away. Right. So when there's, the horse doesn't, isn't there right away, that's really hard. And, and that's really what happened with Stormlands. The horse wasn't there. We tried to... Yeah, well, well, tell me, tell <clears> me about that game, yeah. too. It, it worked that into this, please, because yeah, so, I was curious. Yeah, with Stormlands, yeah, it was Xbox um, launch title, open world, um, you know, kind of a new RPG world that was very focused on storms and, and this idea of almost like a post-apocalypse fantasy, you know, uh, world. And um, uh, Josh Sawyer was, was running the project. He had also done that. He was the game director on New Vegas. And uh, it was a cool world, and, and we'd pitch it to a lot of people. We had a cool demo on the 360, um, and we signed it with Microsoft, and a number of things happened. And, and I and I, um, um, I don't fault Microsoft. I, I do think, in some ways, they handled it a little poorly. Uh, and uh, and I think if there's anything that I would say, don't you know, if I could give people advice, don't do this. Don't sign up a epic RPG. And we were working with an executive producer for like six months to from when we first pitched it, and you know, we were all in sync on everything that we wanted to do. We signed the deal, and two weeks later, we're given a different executive producer who had completely different ideas about what he wanted to do with the product. Um, and on top of that, he was new at Microsoft, and so he wasn't as instilled in right. how everything worked there. He didn't have political capital. Like, and it sounds weird to say that this is part of making games, big games. Like, but all it's odd how much this matters. Well, this is the stuff I'm fascinated by, and yeah. that's that's actually one thing <clears throat> I love about these interviews mm-hmm, on the mm-hmm. shows because that I think that's we we yeah, yeah, players yeah. don't hear about this yes, stuff because yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm listening to your story and I'm thinking you're a you're a renowned role playing mm-hmm. game developer and Microsoft has signed you to make a, a big awesome mm-hmm. RPG for the Xbox One launch mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where they know they're going up against the PlayStation yep. 4 and and it's how how does Microsoft not 
get fully behind that yeah. game and you know because you got you think they'd want to have that mm-hmm. obsidian obsidian entertainment Absolutely. ace yeah, no, in the totally hole ready sense. for November twenty second yeah. two thousand thirteen because it's scary. No, <laughs> I mean, I mean to be blunt, it's because it's scary because so many games fail and because. Um, and I would say RPGs are even harder sometimes for for the for publishers and and, and you know uh, Sony and Microsoft and to understand because you know the brilliance of a RPG is sometimes hard to see and it's it's hard to see it for two and a half years because like I'm not saying that uh, an RPG is so much different or so much more cerebral or anything like that but. If I can get an FPS level up, I can understand really the gameplay of an FPS fairly quickly and does this have cool features and does it look really right. good and everything like that. An RPG is, I mean, how long does it take you to playing an RPG? You're like, you're like, is this, oh, this is amazing. It's, it's all about like that minute of, of you know, maybe say something stupid, but it's the minute of starting in the tavern and going and killing rats in the cellars, right? And it's all this buildup and it's all this story and, and things like that. We can't have that in six months. There's just no way. There is no way to show anybody from having nothing to having that in six months, unless they are uh, uh, they're a publisher or a studio that understands that. So have you not? But how have you not earned that trust? <laughs> as given your mm-hmm. track record, I guess I can you can you share or do you know <laughs> why that game was was canceled by Microsoft? When again, like you'd think for launch, they'd want to have right, this yeah. out there. Is it just a? I mean, I know every company, even Microsoft, mm-hmm. has budgets. You know, because they were they were funding Dead Rising three yes. at that point. They mm-hmm. had Rise mm-hmm. going on, plus their first-party stuff like Forza yeah. 5, it, was it just a, hey, we're not quite sure about this thing yet, so we only have so much money, so let's pick this? But I, I guess, help me understand I, why I, so Microsoft can't. Ultimately, that. I can't tell you. I, I think that the, I mean, I, it, often it does come, it does, it comes down to budget, right? It comes down to budget, and it comes down to having a champion, right? right. Because I can see games um, that had champions and um, weren't canceled until uh, $80 million were spent. I can see there's, there's games that had a $10 million budget and had a champion and ended up the budget was $60 million and it shipped. Um, and so in the end, I think the challenge is, is there has to be someone, when you're talking about big budget stuff, there has to be someone at the publisher uh, or Sony or Microsoft, I guess they're publishers too, but sure. is, is that... If that champion isn't there, and there's not the person to just say, look, no, it's going to be good. And, yeah, it's not where it is right now. And, yes, we're maybe going to spend another $20 million on it. Um, and, you know, and I just, it's going to sound horrible. And you know what, everybody? Just suck it. You know, I mean, I mean not, of course, that should ever be said that way. But, but I mean, but there has to be someone with that attitude and right. the, ability to, the ability to defend the game. Um, I'll even go back all the way back to um, Baldur's Gate, you know, and I, so the position I was in. Um, Baldur's Gate uh, was... Um, we all thought it was awesome, right? And it's doing really well. And the sales forecast came back from Europe. And sales forecasts are attached to how much it's going to be marketed in PR. So the sales forecast from our European office came back zero. They were going to sell it. D&D is meaningless now. We don't believe in RPGs. And so it, was, it had a, it, and, and that actually then impacted how the American like, sales force was thinking about wow. it. And so um, I think Baldur's Gate would have been successful anyway. But no matter, I think... For a game to truly be big, it often has to be pushed, and it has to have sure. ads and PR and all this other kind of stuff. And I, and I remember I went to Brian. I said, Brian, you because know, he's busy, and uh, you know, Interplay was going public, and there's just all this kind of stuff. And I just like grabbed his time, and I said, you have to, you have to help me push this game. Like we're gonna have a, there's gonna be a huge sales um, meeting uh, in like a couple weeks, 
uh, well, this is where Interplay would bring in all the sales reps like Best Buy and all this kind of stuff and do like a weekend. Please get up in front of everybody and say this is going to be amazing. Like sell, you need to sell. They're not listening to me. And so he did. He went up there and he sold it. And um, the sales forecasts went up. <laughs> and, um, and it got more PR and it got more marketing dollars. And, and I th- again, BG would have been successful anyway. But, y- you know, and it sounds like I may be patting myself on the back. But I'm just using it as an example sure. of when you don't, that's when you don't have that. So ultimately the answer to your question, why did Stormlands get canceled? Stormlands got canceled because we didn't have an advocate. So that, that brand new executive producer didn't have Phil Spencer's ear, who was running studios at the time, to really fight for the game. That is my best guess. Interesting. Is, is, is that, um, and it just, it just um, yeah. It's, fr- from a player, game, game player's perspective, mm-hmm. it's astounding to, to, to start to hear about how mm-hmm. much uh, of video games is, is political. Yes. Yeah, it, oh, it is. It's, it's awful. It's, I mean, it's, 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 it's not about it's, how, necessarily about how no, good the game is. It's no, politics sometimes. No. Like I like I you know I know that Human Revolution two would have been out two years before because we originally we were we were we were a developer that was going to do it wow and and there was a budgetary issue and they totally want us to do it and um, but there was a budgetary issue and some other games didn't sell as well and they needed to ended up doing it in, they needed they needed to do it in, in internally to be able to give a team a job right. and so you know you know we didn't end up doing it but that but it's it's you know and other things happened right but. Um, uh, you know, those are, it's funny, I think, you know, when you have developers that have been around a lot, you'd be amazed at the stories of games that didn't get made. Oh, like, I, would, I, just, I would love I, to do a whole show about I that. I find it shocking sometimes, this stuff. <laughs> and because sometimes it makes so much sense. I mean, we even say this, and I, I don't, again, I don't want to disparage anybody at Microsoft or anything like this, but we would have gotten Stormlands done. It would have been good, you know, and, um, you know, and it would have been out, you know, two years ago. Yeah. You know, and that's it's it, and it's not even so. I'm like, oh, it's not oh, dumb Microsoft. It's just oh, that's too bad. Right. Like that's a game that no one's going to get to play now, and that that's that's too bad. Is it is it possible that with with cancellations like mm-hmm. like the ones you've suffered and every developer has suffered in some way along the way, could Stormland could could these things ever come back, or does time just kind of move on eventually, and you got to kind of let it go and move on to the new it thing? It depends. Now, Stormlands is interesting in that Stormlands actually came from a previous pitch of a pitch that we called Defiance, um, that was about this this um, again was kind of about this post apocalyptic fantasy world, uh, and we had this concept of where evil won. Stormlands took some of those ideas, not all the ideas, but took some of them. And then when that got canceled, we then kind of went back to the Defiance pitch and, and made this new pitch, um, and we actually called it Tyranny. And so we actually then went back out on the road, and we, had, we were able to show other publishers sort of all the technology and stuff that we had done for Stormlands. Um, the problem is, is, this is the other thing that happens. Like, so there's already a lot of stress about signing up big products and things like sure. that. And so here's the other challenge. So I just had a product canceled. It's always public. You know, when you're a larger studio and you've done layoffs, everybody knows it's canceled. It doesn't matter how good your pitch is. And, and, and when, you, when you now go up and try to sell that product to someone else, they're like, well, Microsoft canceled it. It doesn't, you know what I mean? So, and, yeah, and no, I can't feel. I, it's like human it's, nature, I it's guess. It's human nature, but it can, it's, it, it's, is it wrong? It's not. It just is, right? And so, um, and so but what we ended up doing, we, we tried to come up, go back to like that defiance pitch, much more evil one. And, uh, but then we, weirdly, so oddly, then we started talking to Paradox, and we had now, you know, and the, I forgot how much longer, you know, a couple years later, 
and uh, we, you know, and we tur- you then end up using the Eternity engine. And so instead of it being sort of a big console, the ideas of that morphed into what became the game Tyranny, Tyranny that shipped a couple of months out ago. And it's, yeah, it's excellent. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. So, all right, let's move to what I hope is a happier topic, <laughs> uh, and that is the fact that you got to work with yet another big IP a few <laughs> years ago in the form of. South Park. Absolutely, I remember yes. when this was announced, I yes. was completely caught off guard. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, I, I love your guys' work, and I adore South Park. Yeah. I've seen every episode, and I, you know, I thought as that Matt Stone and Trey Parker were done making video games because yeah, 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 it, yeah, yeah, yeah. it had gone and horribly had that, for yeah. them. Yeah. So uh, the game, the Stick of Truth, was fa- absolutely fantastic well, on yeah, all yeah. counts. It was. Uh, I, I don't think there was. For me, it was the probably one of the two or three best games of the year, period. Awesome. Uh, what, what was it like to work with those guys, with, with Matt and Trey? Oh, it was, it was awesome. I mean, I, you know, I think that they, you know, they were just, they're great guys. You know, they, they, they love what they do. Um, they, um, Trey is a huge game player, so that, that's, conven- that's helpful. Like, sometimes when you're doing licenses, the person that you're dealing with is not someone who plays games. Yeah. And so you're trying to deal with a lot of, a lot of stuff and trying to explain stuff that they don't understand. And so... Um, and so, no, that was great. I mean, and they gave us a lot of their time. And I think, you know, the, the, the only criticism I would ever have is that, um, and it was not their fault. It was just that, you know, one, Book of Mormon took a lot of their time. And then when Book of Mormon exploded, it took even more of their time. And that was, t- not, I mean, of course, they, would wa- want, they wanted it to be successful. Right. But they just didn't know how successful it was <laughs> going to be and how much it was going to take their time. Um, but they were, very, I mean, I mean, they welcomed us into their homes. You know, we, we flew out to New York and we would hang, you know, we would do um, design meetings in Trey's home and in Matt's home and so, uh, apartments. And so, um, no, they were great. And, you know, they, they tried to give us whatever time they could. So uh, I have to ask, did, did it frustrate you to not get to make the sequel? Yeah, it did. So it's it, this is a weird one, right? It's it's it really. You've got to hold a grudge before we get to the end of this interview. You're going to admit that you have a grudge against someone. Maybe it's Ubisoft. <laughs> I don't know who it is, but no. I, but seriously, um, like, yeah. I mean, t- you you made a great game and the stick of truth it, against all odds. It's this inc- it's this it, fantastic. Yeah, yes, against role. You're, like, it's the best what, way to say it. You know, and I think I think at the end of what I said, I was talking to some people. I was actually at Dice a couple years ago, and I think and I said to our year ago, and I said. Uh, I uh, know two years ago, and I said, uh, I, I think at the end, just everybody needed a hug, you know. And it was just, it was, it was hard, and there was a lot of stuff going on, and you know, Trey's having a kid at the very end of it, and you know, and I, it was just a lot of stuff going on, and, and um, um, you had the old THQ going bankrupt in the middle of it. Um, no, uh, so here's the best way to say it: is, yeah, was it? Did did we feel slighted by not even being offered it? Of course. I mean, that was that was that's that's. Feels like you did a really good job, and then they you, you, they don't want to date us anymore. I mean, you know, I, I mean, it's kind of you know, like that feels bad. But on the flip side, you know, I think that um, it's odd if they had offered it to us, we couldn't have done it because we just had no we had no capacity. Like we had no we're not gonna like I don't want to have seventeen teams, right? We already right. had too many teams at the time, and we couldn't have we couldn't have even done it. And so, um, um, but you know, I I I am disappointed in certain ways that we didn't get to make it because. Um, you know, some of the challenges we had on that game is, is and I'm trying to, you know, it's like I don't want to blame, not third-party stuff. I just want to blame other things. But it was really hard to do the game we wanted on the Xbox 360 and the PS4 because of memory. And, and it was like, well, it's a 2D game. What are you PS3, talking about? Right. You know, PS, sorry, PS3 and the 360. But um, it was hard because we wanted the game to so much look like the the cartoon and this sounds dumb but if you want like Cartman's face to look perfectly round at like like this size on screen 
it's just a billion polys, right? And the so, irony of that. Yeah, I know. Isn't it weird? <laughs> it's like it's like and and to to have all these kids with all these different, um, uh, you know, all these different like clothes and and looks and even though it's all based off the kind of the same thing the thing which people don't know as well is like the animation rig and when i say animation rig so it's the skeleton it's this it's the skeleton that drives the animation yeah. we call them animation rigs the animation rig actually in in south park is more complicated than any game we ever did because you because the as the play as the character moves and things it's a complete it's not the same it's not like a 3d model i can just twist the camera it's it's still the same 3d model right it has to transition into all this other kind of stuff and it had to be all it couldn't be everything couldn't be hand animated like the show a lot of challenges and and i was just a lot of us were so like god if we could have done this now on the ps4 and the, the ps4 and the and the xbox one because of the memory it really just was a lot of it was just memory having that memory to 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 fill to make to have that graphics that's you know that's so crisp um i think that would have been awesome but again not trying to blame those, those consoles and things like that it's just it's just that was i you know it would have been cool it would have been fun i guess is the end to say I mean, it. as I, I do have to ask too as uh i mean i'd love to get matt and trey here but yeah, until yeah, yeah, that yeah. time yeah. um <laughs> As outrageously funny as that game mm-hmm. is, and so th- there are scenes in that game where I was just shocked that, mm-hmm, that, that mm-hmm. it was going. Was there other ridiculous things that hit the cutting room floor for what for one reason or another? I don't in know, that but game? I should say this one, but I'll say it anyways. <laughs> so um, there was a boss fight with Paris Hilton at one point, and her boss attack was the Vag Blast, <laughs> and that was. However you're picturing it in your head, that's it. <laughs> so there were things like that. And that was, I think, a lot of it is, is, is Trey has so many amazing, cool ideas. Oh, that one I think was ours. But I think that the, the Trey has so many ideas. And, and, and I think that, you know, there's, when we say we made a game, we made four games and you got a quarter. You, you know, and, um, and, and that's not like it was, that's not like, oh, we had, four, we had 400% of a game and in the last month we cut it. That's not what it is. It right. just, just as we were making the game, like we realized a whole tree, like crazy huge treehouse that hold, had a whole LARP quest and it kind of taught you how to play the game and all that kind of stuff. And it made sense at one point and then Trey was looking at it and rightfully so. He said, look, but in the backyard they don't have a tree that's like, like 19 screens, you know, and so while it felt right at the beginning and then that turned into what was the backyard eventually and, and um, which was more kind of like, you know, just what, you know, what kids would make, not, not this weirdly realized giant treehouse. Uh, so why why does the Paris Hilton hit the cutting room? Floor you know, I don't even remember. I'm sorry. It was so <laughs> is it long. Legal? Is it was it? so long ago. I think it just it just it did. I think the the level that it made sense for got changed a lot. And mm-hmm. I think that and and I think that we were just we were also um, what was interesting. And it doesn't matter now. But what was interesting when we first started the game? Um, it's going to sound so weirdly legal, but. Um, is that the First Amendment actually didn't cover video games? So um, basically, in libel and slander and you know and you know protection of speech did not actually cover video games very well. It still covered print and TV. Yeah. So what they could do actually on the TV show, um, we couldn't do in games necessarily. And so now that's been changed. I mean, there's there's a court case and, and everything like that. So we were we were kind of we had to be more careful in the game about things like that um, than we would now actually. So uh, while I, I've been, you've been kind to share some of the behind-the-scenes yeah, yeah. stories of all these experiences with all these publishers you've worked with, from an outside perspective, mm-hmm. it would seem like you guys have been burned by big publishers multiple times. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you feel like, is it just bad luck, or is it, or is it 
the unfortunate nature of the business? What? Like with anything, it's not any one thing. I think it is a collection of those. I think it's a collection of mistakes we've made. Um, it's a collection of being too... Like, let's say the biggest mistake I think that we've made ever is that we we, we are, are what our um, stomachs are... I don't know what our mouth is... I forget the saying, basically, like, we want to do too much. And, um, and we, so we say, okay, we'll agree to that budget... And it's and it's not like we're agreeing. We're not lying. We're not doing anything like right. that. But we just kind of like we're hopeful that we can make the game that we want for that budget. Um, that's not the, why all of them got canceled. But that's why some of our games ran into trouble. I think the other thing that happened is, um, you know, for us is just not being as um, games. You know, how you make games now is not how you made them in the mid '90s, and and so we've had to transition. And so so much so much of that is that. Now on the publisher side, um, yeah, I think that that is. You know, how the world works now and working for publishers is just, again, not what it was 10, 15 years ago. It used to be, a, you could see, like a developer would make a game and there would be some ups and downs, and but it would come sure. out and it would do pretty well. And then, and then But publishers were all also publishing a lot more games. And so now the challenge is, is when you've finished a new game, a big game, and maybe the publisher does not want to, because it doesn't know, the publisher isn't sure how the game is going to do until the game is done, or so the game is shipped. But we're done. So and if and if they've not signed us to the sequel, you know, in essence, three months before, we need to sign up another deal somewhere else. So sometimes, why we've moved from project to project is just because there's just we have to like right. we, we can't hold a team for three months, um, hoping that we'll get another deal. Um, and now we're we're dealing with that in our our contracts a little bit better now. And DLC has helped a lot, but um, but I think that's you know so sometimes where maybe we've been burnt, it's been more of just the realities of of how the industry works now. So, uh, with with that, all that being said, <clears throat> would you ever put the company to work on a licensed IP again, or is it is it just too risky these days to get involved with something that you don't own and control? Oh no, I would uh, no, absolutely, I would do. I, I would do a Star Wars game. I would do another South Park game. I would do um, we do we would do a Fallout. We would do anything. I mean, I mean. I don't want to only be doing licensed product. Right. And, and I would say the licensed stuff that we don't want to do, we would never want to do a movie game. In other words, that, uh, you know, sorry, and what I mean by a movie game is like, uh, there are not even that many anymore, That's but true, is, right? is this idea, obviously, that uh, you just, you, uh, King Kong comes out and you're just doing a movie right. that follows the exact story of King Kong and it has to be done for $2 million and be day and date with a movie, right? So we would never do that because it's not about what we do. What we want to do is take someone's world um, and totally, uh, um, Take their world and go and and uh, live within it and 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 get to play in it. Um, it's still absolutely their world, and we respect that. I think that's why people enjoy the licensed games that we do because we're not there to tell Matt and Trey or, or George Lucas or or now Todd Howard um, what those things are. Yeah. Um, and I know some people would say, "Why would you say that? You made Fallout." I go, "No, Fallout is Todd Howard's now. It's not. It's not Tim Kaine's and Leonard Boyarsky's or Fergus Arcart's or Jason Anderson's. That's that's it's it's theirs, and that's fine. I mean, it's a little weird. I mean, it's <laughs> it's super weird to go to Target and see the Vault Boy on a T-shirt. I mean, that's just the bizarrest. <laughs> like, like what it, you know? So, but um, but no, I, I licensed is good I, because you just it's it's like a break, or it's just you get to um, it's it's like why people are like, well, why did you do a South Park game? And and my answer was, why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't you? You know, I mean, I mean, that's that's my answer. Like, it's not it's not all about have to like have us very specific ways we do our business and and all that is like. Sometimes the cool thing is that we get to do stuff that's fun and just get to play in, like I said, get to play in other people's worlds. So that brings us to the modern day yes. Obsidian, uh, where you guys have sort of increasingly 
uh, moved away from the traditional publishing mm-hmm. models yeah, yeah, yeah. In, uh, in favor of crowdfunding. You guys mm-hmm. have had a lot of success in the crowdfunding field. Do you feel like that the crowdfunding model is the future for the present and or future for Obsidian, right. uh, Obsidian or does it just happen, happen to be how you're doing business right now? It is an aspect of how we do business right now. I think that crowdfunding is incredible and it's awesome and, and we're really hopeful for uh, the new crowdfunding um, platform that we're involved in is FIG. And we're really interested to see, because I think when you look at crowdfunding, there seems to be kind of a cap. Maybe four million or six million right. or seven million, um, unless you're a board game and then you can do twelve, like, <laughs> but or you have miniatures. It's all about miniatures. <laughs> if you can put little gray miniatures, and everyone give you a lot of money, but um, I think that there's this cap, and obviously we can do Pillars of Eternity for a smaller budget, but if we wanted to do our own not Fallout game, but Fallout like game, that's not a that's not a five million, ten million dollar game. That is a twenty, thirty, forty million dollar game. And so how can we do that without going necessarily to the traditional publishing model? Um, now, having said that, increasingly this year, I would say, is publishers have been more open to talking about situations where we could actually own our own IP. Um, we may have to work them, with them for a little bit longer. But, but ultimately, so um, I think there's, I've seen some movement there, even with larger publishers. I think you'd be surprised. And, and, uh, but with the crowdfunding, I think it is a great place for this kind of these pro- the products that publishers aren't built to support anymore. It's probably the best way to say it. Is like um, certain publishers are like Paradox and Techland and Koch and and but for you know Activision, EA, and Ubisoft, a you know a niche RPG that's going to sell seven eight hundred thousand units. It's just a weird. They don't. It's 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 not even that they don't necessarily know what to do with it. They don't have the people to do anything right. with it. And, and I think that's what, where crowdfunding is amazing. But, but the hope is, I mean, I would love to see, like, how, um, how could we build it up more? You know, if people wanted to be able to want us to make a game that's like Fallout, as an example, um, that would be awesome, you know? And so how could I fund it um, in a sort of a non-traditional manner? So uh, Pillars of Eternity, that <clears throat> was big Kickstarter mm-hmm. success for you guys. Your goal was 1.1 million, and yes. you ended up uh, about right about four, mm-hmm, like you mm-hmm. said. So uh, the game got finished, unlike yeah. a lot of Kickstarter games. <laughs> it did. Yeah. It released great reviews on Steam, and uh, about a million-ish copies sold from from right what around I could there. Find. Yeah, 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 right around there. Yeah. Uh, so was was that process hugely gratifying for you guys because it was it was all you, and there was. There was no publisher involved there. Yeah, I think that. Um, yeah, I mean, what was? I mean, it, it kind of comes back to getting to own it, and and it sounds like a little bit like I'm all saying like I'm going to keep my ball, like and it's it's my playground, it's my ball, right? <laughs> but it's more of, it really is more of that. Well, we get to decide the future of it. Um, that's what's hard sometimes. You we go off and make stick of truth, and we have no say now of whether we make the game, we don't make the game, um, when it gets made. Yeah. Um, if it gets made, you know, like all these kind of things. And so with Stick of Truth, I mean, with, with Pillars of Eternity, it's ours to decide now. And we get to do with other things. Like we did a card game, uh, uh, Pillars of Eternity, Eastern, uh, Lords of the Eastern Reach. And that's fun. Like it's, like, like it's kind of, you know, it's uplifting. It's, it's um, a lot of us, even the guys who do business all day long, we got into it to be creative in games. And owning your own thing means you get to be just a little bit more creative. Um, there, obviously, there's the aspect of it that without a publisher looking over us, like publishers can be absolutely helpful in what we're doing. Sometimes they sometimes they can get in the way, and um, I, they would admit them themselves they get in the way sometimes. 
So, uh, you know, but that means that without a publisher, we have to be our own, we have to watch ourselves. I turn into the publisher in some right. ways because I have to say, hey, no, we have to make it milestones and we have to get this game done. We can't just keep on making it forever. Um, luckily, the Pillars team has been great about that and they, they really focus on, um, we do have only so much money, but we need to make an amazing game for the people, the, uh, the people who, were, who amazingly gave us uh, their trust, gave us trust. And that brings us to now. Yes. Uh, Talk to me about the new thing. Yes, so Pillars of Eternity too. So we've we've uh, you know talked about it a little bit here and there, but uh, but yeah, we're crowdfunding it, and uh, we're crowdfunding it through Fig, and which also means crowd investment. And so it's this interesting thing where people not only they can do kind of the normal crowdfunding as they would do on Kickstarter with backing the game and mm-hmm. you know getting the game and you know as rewards and other things, but now they have the opportunity to invest it instead and invest in the success. Of it, and um, it's gonna be interesting to see how that goes. But, but as a game, I mean, it's it's super cool. Like, it's um, you know, we're so thankful to get to work on a sequel. We've not really been able to, and so which is so interesting to be around for 14 years now and not ever get to work on a sequel. And 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 it's really already worked on a sequel, but not well, not for our sequel. Sorry, (laughs) sequel. We worked on a lot of sequels, just not sequels to our own things. And so it's been a lot of fun to now go, hey, we did all this stuff and some of it turned out great and some of it turned out not as great. Well, now we get to work on all that and we get to work on the engine. And we need to, and so, yeah, Pillars 2, I mean, there's like, I mean, there's a litany of, of things that are so different about it. And, and, but still at the core, um, it is that Infinity Engine experience. It is that, that Baldur's Gate, Torment, Icewind Dale experience that we've, that uh, we are, re- again, very thankful that people really did want again. Uh, and so that's always that's been the focus. All right, uh, Fergus Urquhart, thank you so much. Absolutely, the no, game this is of Pillars great. of Eternity two on Fig now. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you are interested in checking that out, maybe getting involved. Yep. You, I guess we, you can invest in, absolutely. and profit you, in the in the, absolutely. the spoils. Yes, I guess, yes, if exactly. The game goes well, you know, and ask questions. I mean, if you're up there and you're and you're like, how does this all how does this all work? Just ask this question. We'll we'll be happy to answer answer them. Uh, but thank you so much again. Your your career is fascinating. <laughs> uh, so many amazing ups and downs and mm-hmm. great stories that you've been kind yeah. enough to share. So uh, for much more from the best, brightest, most interesting minds in the game industry, such as this fine gentleman sitting across from me, be sure to tune back each and every month for a new episode of IGN Unfiltered. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.